And now a word from GSK. Respiratory syncytial virus, better known as RSV, has been in the news a lot lately, and RSV season is fast approaching. RSV infection can put older adults at risk, including those with certain underlying conditions. But vaccination with RxV, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted, can protect adults aged 60 years and older. RxV is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from RSV in people 60 years and older. Arexvi is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV and over 94% effective in those with asthma, diabetes, COPD, chronic heart failure, advanced liver or kidney disease, or any chronic respiratory or pulmonary disease. Arexvi does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexvi is right for you and learn more by calling 888-Orexvi9 or by visiting orexvi.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. RSV? Make it Orexvi. It starts with a little bit of a sore throat, then a runny nose, headache, you feel tired all day, you got a cold. Cold viruses infect most of us on average two or three times a year. And we just accept colds as a fact of life. But what if we didn't have to? The Ministry of Health Research Unit at Harvard Hospital Salisbury has been investigating the common cold. And volunteers, human guinea pigs, have been living there in pairs for 10 days at a time. That's an old movie tone newsreel, and it's about the Common Cold Unit. The Common Cold Unit, or CCU, was a scientific institution that opened in the UK in 1946. And for decades, volunteers went there in order to be infected with the common cold. Then researchers would study what happened next. Their ultimate goal was to figure out which virus or viruses caused colds and whether science could finally make the common cold disappear for good. The common cold unit became pretty famous in its day. Volunteers went back year after year. Some of them even fell in love there, got married. And more than a few famous scientists started their careers spraying cold viruses up people's noses. In the end, the CCU failed to achieve its main goal. It did not produce a cure for or a vaccine to prevent the common cold. But it did lay the groundwork for a lot of what we know today about viruses. And the stories of what scientists learned at the common cold unit and how they learned it are amazing and delightful. Snotty tissues may never again play such a pivotal role in scientific research. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and you're listening to Incubation, a show about all the other viruses. In previous episodes, we found out how science progressed from Edward Jenner's early work on smallpox to the development of the polio vaccine to the 21st century design of a vaccine for RSV. But even after all this progress, we're still missing some simple answers. Today, we're going deep on the common cold. We're going to talk about what we know and what we don't know about the many viruses that cause it. A lot of what we do know comes from research on human volunteers in the UK who went to the common cold unit and signed up to get sick. Our first guest today is Katie Dabin. She's a curator at the Science Museum in London, and she oversees a collection that includes vintage snotty tissues and other artifacts from the CCU. 
I worked at the Science Museum for quite a few years and the first time I encountered the Common Cold Unit was about 10 years ago. And we've got this amazingly large object store in West London and you see all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But I was sort of in one room and I could see this like really flowery armchair. And it just sort of struck me as so strange. You know, it's not an x-ray machine. It's not a stethoscope. I sort of did a bit of digging. And basically it was an armchair from the Common Cold Unit. It was part of the volunteers, the kind of furniture they would have sat on. And yeah, that's how I first discovered uh, this weird and wonderful place called the Common Cold Unit. A place so amazing that even just a chair from there belongs in a museum. Absolutely. So, okay, the Common Cold Unit was set up in this, basically this abandoned hospital in the British countryside right after World War II. How How does this happen? Like, what's the story there? There's a British virologist called Christopher Andrews, and he has been over to the States and seen this amazing research with American scientists who are using chimpanzee models, which appear to be the only animal model at that point where you could transmit the common cold and start investigating it. But, you know, Britain, post-war... Chimpanzees are not easy to come by to do this type of research. Uh Um, So what's definitely the next best thing are human volunteers. (laughs) So human guinea pigs. we're, We're basically not, we don't have enough of a research culture to do chimpanzees, but we do have people. Well, we have people, we have medical students, which are definitely, you know, one of the next best things. And so he sort of is, is aware of this, you know, infectious disease hospital. And it's so isolated that he sees it as an opportunity that actually you can start carrying out these volunteer medical studies into the common cold. So in July 1946, so just a few months after this site gets set up, they're welcoming their first volunteers to be you know, infected with the common cold and to see if they could transmit it. Why set up a whole unit just to study the common cold? I mean, the common cold just seems, I mean, it almost seems relatively trivial to us today. But it's not that long after the Spanish influenza epidemic. So there's a lot of research into influenza and the cold and viruses and bacteria in general in the 1930s. You know, coming out of the war, there's a real need to rebuild Britain and Europe. And there's real worries about productivity in Britain. Like so many people are taking sick days, they're going absent from work. And actually, is there a really easy way we could solve what was causing the common cold, find a cure and encourage more people to stay healthy and not seek out expensive medical visits to doctors at the time? And there is this real problem every year everybody's, you know, missing a week of work because they're sick with the cold. If we could fix that, this this moment of faith in science and progress, right? If we could find a cure for the common cold, that would be a huge boon to to productivity. Absolutely. I mean, there's this real spirit of trying to solve these issues. You know, they're identifying influenza. They're coming up with new vaccines for lots of conditions. Right. Maybe we could find a vaccine. So everybody, every, when you're a baby, you get a shot. You never have to get a cold. Amazing. Absolutely. And who wouldn't take that option if you could? I would take it now, in a heartbeat. (laughs) So what did scientists know? What did, you know, humanity know about the common cold at this time in 1946? Did we know it was a virus? Did we know which virus? So really little. There was definitely inklings that it was some form of virus, but very little known about it at all. It was very much this open question to understand what was causing the common cold. Was there one cause? Was there multiple causes? How is it being transmitted? They were also interested in, like, in terms of causes, like common myths and things. If you stand out in the rain and the cold, does getting a chill cause the cold? You know, there were lots of really important questions to explore. 
So we got the questions. We got the place. The common cold unit is open. How does it work? So the research team advertise for volunteers. They send out adverts into local newspapers to say things like 10-day free break in the autumn and winter. You might not win a Nobel Prize, but you will help find a cure for the common cold. Okay. The, the, the trials sort of lasted for around about two weeks, and they'd take 30 volunteers who would be split into two groups, and they would live in these little huts on site. Um, so uh, married couples could stay in the same little uh, volunteer flat, but unmarried couples absolutely you know, prohibited. And, and really, as a volunteer, this was like an amazing opportunity to almost have a lovely holiday stay, a relaxing <laughs> stay. You would be paid a very small amount of money, about £1.75 a week or something like that. You'd have your travel expenses paid, but then you'd get three meals a day. It was very relaxing. You know, you could read, you could study, you could go for walks in the countryside. And, and let's be clear, you know, post-war Britain is a tough place economically. I mean, Britain won the war, but it got destroyed. Absolutely. I mean, rationing doesn't end till like, the mid-1950s. People really want to volunteer and help Britain. Yeah. And, you know, it really feels like they're doing something, but, something good. Let me ask you this. Okay, so that's the fun side. You get three meals and you get to walk in the country. What do you got to do? What do you got to do <laughs> if you're a volunteer there? You turn up, say if you turn up on a Wednesday, you'd first have to quarantine for three days to make sure that you weren't infectious with, you know, a cold already. So assuming after those three days you were fine and well, um, you would then be infected with somebody else's nasal washings. How are you infected with someone else's nasal washings? What does that actually mean? So often it would be like just through nose swabs, but sometimes it was sprays. Okay. They'd be inventing all sorts of crazy apparatus to replicate with sneeze droplets and things like that. So uh, basically, for a lot of people, the, the scientists give you a cold. Yeah, absolutely. And then for the next week, you're just observed. And so some people, after a couple of days, would develop a cold and the researchers would collect all their snotty tissues and try and incubate and analyse what the material in those snotty tissues. And then other people never developed anything and had a very thoroughly pleasant stay. I mean, really, only about a third of um, uh, the volunteers would, would ever get a cold. So actually, you had a pretty good chance not getting one at all uh, during the process. And after about 10 days, you were released back to your regular life. Let's talk about, they had this goal of finding a cure or a vaccine. They thought they might do it in a few years. Spoiler alert, they didn't. But let's, let's talk <laughs> about some of the work that they did there. Let's talk about the snot experiment. Well, one of the amazing things is like actually quite a few famous or sort of really important people worked at the Common Cold Unit. And one of them was James Lovelock, British scientist. And in his early research, he was an incredible engineer who could come up with amazing solutions to tricky experimental problems. And he invented this nasal dropper system. So if you imagine like a thin tube strapped to your nose that would drop a solution that contained a fluorescent dye within it, it was sort of there simulating a drippy nose essentially. And then the experiment was to simulate, you know, just like a normal everyday activity. The participants were playing cards, were making cups of tea, just hanging out for the evening. And at the end of, you know, a few hours of, of just normal day-to-day -day interaction, they turned off the lights and put the fluorescent lamp on and they could see the traces of how this sort of fluorescent dye had been transmitted all across different surfaces, across <laughs> the playing cards, across cups, cups, kitchen. It really revealed that act of transmission. That transmission, it wasn't just sort of through yeah. inhalation alone, it's through, that you know, we're touch. all disgusting and we all get our snot over each other all the time. Basically. 
You mentioned that at the Common Cold Unit, they, they studied whether being cold makes you catch cold. Was there a particular study you were referring to? They had participants who stood outside in, in the cold and the wet to, yeah, to test this um, theory about whether that made them more you know, predisposed to developing the common cold. And apparently they disproved that. So just to be clear, standing out in the cold does not make you more likely to get a cold. Just for, for my mother and for everybody's <laughs> mother, being cold does not make you catch a cold. According to the common cold unit studies at that point in time, yes. <laughs> uh, my mother is a physician, by the way. I feel guilty saying that because she knows. But she still always wanted me to bring a coat. So we know they didn't find a cure or a vaccine for the cold. Or if they did, they didn't tell anybody because we don't have one. <laughs> but what did they figure out? So people have construed the common cold unit as a failure, like a research failure. But over its sort of 40-odd years, the unit produced over a 1,000 research papers. And they started off in those early days trying to find ways to grow the common cold viruses in um, laboratory cultures. So they worked that out. They revealed lots of insights around transmission. But really what they did that was exciting is that they discovered rhinoviruses and coronaviruses through all the sort of volunteer nasal snot collecting they were doing and analysis. So this is a big deal, right? And I understand that the discovery of coronavirus in particular is actually, it's actually kind of an interesting story, right? So there was an amazing researcher, virologist called David Tyrrell, who started off in 1957 as a researcher at the Common Cold Unit. And he's doing really interesting experiments. We all know school kids are such a reservoir of colds and snot, Indeed. Uh, essentially. Indeed. Every parent knows that, yes. Every parent knows that. So they invited school groups to have parties at the Common Cold Centre and, again, would collect nasal specimens from particularly snotty school kids. And after one of, one of the samples from, I think, about a 12-year-old schoolboy in 1960... David Terrell was researching this specimen. And after sort of conducting lots of different experiments, trying to identify what type of virus it was, it just didn't match to anything he already knew huh. that existed. And so by about 1965, he publishes his first paper saying, oh, I've identified this unknown virus. To be clear, he knows that it's causing the cold, but he can't grow yeah. it. He can't see it. Yeah, absolutely. So he can't see it. But then he's put in contact with this amazing virologist called June Almeida. She was born in Glasgow, lived in Glasgow tenements. Her dad was a bus driver. As a young girl, her six-year-old brother died of diphtheria. So, oh, wow. you know, she's got really close contact with infectious disease. And that sort of inspired her to want to get involved in a medical career. So I, I was reading about her when I was getting ready for this interview. And I understand that what she ends up doing is electron microscopy, which at the time, it's this relatively new technology, right? Tell, tell me more about that. She just develops this amazing ability to be able to take uh, virus images. A lot of um, people describe it like gardening. You know, there's still an uh -huh. art and a, and a kind of being green. It's like, it, like being green-fingered. To get those images took a lot of preparation, and, and she just was able to do it. She's taking ones of rubella for the first time. That causes German measles. And David Terrell from the Common Cold Unit becomes aware of these amazing images and her work using an electron microscope. And so he sends her this sample of this schoolboy snotty tissue and, and this virus sample. And she's able to prepare it and, and start taking images. And so for the first time, she images the first ever coronavirus. So he sends her whatever, snotty tissues, the samples from the schoolboy with the mystery virus. And what does she see when she looks at it? 
So nobody's visualised a coronavirus before. So she's looking at it for the first time using an electron microscope. And so she sees this slightly round virus particle. But what makes it really different looking is these little projections that come out of it, these little spiky projections. She described it as like a, a solar corona, so like the, the uh-huh. corona you get around the sun. And it was through these images that she and David and a, a couple of other virologists agreed on calling this new type of virus they identified coronaviruses. Huh. So that sort of stylized image that we all saw a million times over the past three years of the little circle yeah. with the little lines, the spikes right, coming yeah. out of it, she was the first one ever to see that. Yeah, she was absolutely the first person to see that. Why does it end up being a big deal that they discovered the coronavirus? Obviously, imaging the coronavirus has become a much bigger deal since the the pandemic. It's much more important uh, to us now. But I think it's also important in terms of understanding the history of the common cold and, and the research and the unit as well. So many different viruses cause the common cold. There isn't one single cause. And so by understanding that there were rhinoviruses and coronaviruses and all sorts of different viruses causing the cold, it just complicates the picture. It just sort of shows that it's it's really hard to cure the common cold. So what what is the end of the story of the common cold unit? It's incredible that the common cold unit ran for over 40 years. So eventually, by uh, 1989, they welcomed their last volunteers and essentially the Medical Research Council um, decided to stop funding the site of the common cold unit. So It's amazing in a way that it's still going on in the 80s, maybe because I'm old enough to remember the 80s and it's like, sure, oh, the 40s, this is some weird old-timey thing from a long time before I was born. But that it was going on in the 80s when, like, you know... Whatever they were, you this, know, yeah, hugely like genomics and like you know, it this. seems kind of anachronistic by that point, right? I mean, the, the, the problem with the common cold unit, it particularly, it started off being in such an isolated environment, which was such a great thing for this kind of isolating and quarantine study. But actually, it was very isolated from the kind of developments within medical research at that time and these amazing other research facilities being built. And so it, it did begin to see, be seen as this sort of slightly anachronistic research model in that way. So, so when we zoom out and think about this interesting place, what should we make of it? I mean, for me, I think it's a brilliant story of the willingness of people to, to volunteer and give their bodies and time to, to try and solve some medical challenge. And I think it just demonstrates that, you know, often... We're after a quick fix. You know, we want things to be easily solved by a vaccine or a a simple drug. Yeah, and I mean, just how complex the common cold is seems like one one of the real discoveries of the common cold unit. Anyway, it was great to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. Alas, the common cold unit did not, in fact, get rid of colds forever. But scientists still draw on that research to understand how viruses spread and how they work inside our bodies. How cold viruses make us feel sick and what we can do to make ourselves feel better. That's when incubation returns. And now a word from GSK. RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, can put older adults at risk, including those with certain underlying conditions. Fortunately, vaccination is available. Orexv, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from RSV in people 60 years and older. 
Vaccination with Orexv is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV in adults 60 years and older, and over 94% effective in those with asthma, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, chronic heart failure, advanced liver or kidney disease, or any chronic respiratory or pulmonary disease. Orexv does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexv is right for you and learn more by calling 888-OREXV-9 or by visiting orexv.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. R-S-V, make it a Rexv. One of the things that those researchers in the UK discovered as they studied the common cold for decades, there is no single culprit. In fact, we now know that more than 200 different viruses cause this group of symptoms that we lump under the term common cold. The biggest group of viruses is called rhinoviruses. Rhino from the Greek for nose, like in rhinoceros. Scientists now believe that rhinoviruses cause somewhere around half of all colds. There is, in fact, a good chance that at this very minute, I am fighting off a rhinovirus. So, lucky me, as host of this show, I get to call up a leading expert on rhinoviruses and ask him for some explanations, some advice. The expert's name is Gary McLean, and he's an emeritus professor at London Metropolitan University. What should I do if I don't want to get a cold? Stay away from people all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, not going to work for me. Um, So let's just talk about the viruses that cause the common cold. Just give me the basics. What do we know about these viruses? They're parasites, and they're not cells. They're neither dead nor alive. They're really, really small. So the Even average, for a virus. That's right. Even for, for a virus. If we stick to rhinovirus here, those are about 30 nanometers in diameter. If you look at a, a clenched fist, a normal-sized clenched fist, the virus is about a million times smaller than that. There's lots of those viral particles that are then delivered to the correct area, which is your nose, those viral particles will then attach to the surface of the cells. Now, the surface of cells is quite a sugary, sticky, gluggy mess. And those viral particles will latch on to really specific parts that project from those cells. It'll kind of be swallowed into the cell. And that's what the virus wants to happen. Okay, so cold virus, a rhinovirus... It comes into my nose. It latches on to some cells up in my nose. Perfect fit. What happens next? Basically, the membrane of the cell kind of folds in on itself and it drags the virus in with it. And then the genome can then start doing what it does. And that's basically making copies of itself and copies of new virus particles. And specifically, it's hijacking my nose cells to make copies of the virus, Absolutely right. right. That's what it does, yes. So why do I feel like ass when that happens to me? Well, it takes a few days. This period often referred to as an incubation period where 
there's a little bit of time in between the infection first taking place and noticing actual symptoms. That's because the cell is taken over or hijacked by the virus. That's a trigger to the cell that there's something wrong. And when that cell then starts releasing molecules saying, oh, look, I, I'm, I, something's gone wrong with me, I, I'll, I'll produce this molecule, that will tell other components of the body, including the immune system, that there's something seriously wrong with this cell. Those are then the symptoms that you start to feel. So the symptoms are our immune system trying to fix what's happened and that, uh, that that cell is infected. So in a sense, it's not the virus making me feel sick. It's my body fighting the virus that's making me feel Absolutely sick. correct. And if you think about it from the point of view of the virus, it doesn't want to make you sick. You are the host and the virus is a parasite. And without a host, it can't reproduce. So the virus doesn't want to cause damage to the host, but there is some collateral damage, if you like. And the best viruses have evolved over a long period of time to to make those symptoms appear almost like nothing so that the host isn't really aware of it. And the virus is quite happily reproducing and the host is quite happily a host for the viral particles. Everybody wins. Everybody wins, yeah. What's the end of the story? So the body is attacking the virus, and it makes me have a running nose and a headache, and it makes me feel tired. And then after a week, I feel fine. Why? The virus by then has made enough copies of itself. It's done what it had to do in that particular host. The job now is to find the next nose. It needs to get out of there and find another nose to make more copies. Whenever you sneeze or cough when you're, when you're feeling ill and you've got a cold. That's a beautiful way of releasing those viral particles out into the atmosphere, out onto surfaces that then another host can then pick up. So I want to do a sort of lightning round to ask you, is there good evidence that any of the following things will help me recover from a cold more quickly? Sure. Zinc. Some evidence. Vitamin C. Some evidence. Rest. Good evidence. Drink lots of fluids. Good evidence. Really? Good evidence that those things will make me get better faster? It'll make your body feel better. Interesting. I'm surprised that there is some evidence for zinc and vitamin C. To tell you the truth, my understanding was that there was not. So tell me why I'm wrong. That's interesting. Well, the common cold unit uh, did produce some zinc particles, which did show some effect in laboratory-style tests, uh, that it was efficient at reducing some of the symptoms of common cold. Do you take zinc when you get a cold? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? I, uh, I rest. I drink lots of water. Uh, but I don't take any over-the-counter medications. Uh, Vitamin C, I would recommend. Vitamin C is an antioxidant, so it has a lot of good properties that can help your immune system and help deal with uh, toxins. It's not targeting the virus. It's just 
targeting the the symptoms that appear and anything that can kind of reduce those symptoms somewhat i would argue is a good thing but it's 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 not really a cure it, it's just palliative treating what you see in front of you okay so so we know that there is this incredible diversity of viruses that cause colds is that basically why I keep getting colds? Because every time I get sick, my body fights off some cold virus, then I get infected with some other cold virus? Exactly right. If you think about it as an adult, we get on average two to three colds a year. We know there's approximating uh, 250 to 300 different types of virus that can cause common colds. And so what that basically means is that immunity to the first virus you get doesn't protect you against the other 280 different versions of those viruses. So yes, you may accumulate some immunity along the way, but it's not helping you against any of the others, only against that one version of the virus. So unfortunately, they're too fast and too clever for us. You mentioned among the kinds of viruses that cause colds, coronaviruses. And I had read that one of the coronaviruses that causes, you know, a mild cold now is thought to have caused a horrible global pandemic long ago, hundreds of years ago or a thousand years ago. Is that right? Well, we know with the coronaviruses that because it's an RNA genome and it's mutating and changing every time it, it reproduces, it drifts, it, it slowly accumulates mutations that change it. So I think it's a combination of things. The virus is changing with each step that it makes, with each new host that it infects. And eventually those changes will give the virus an opportunity. It gives it an advantage over previous versions. And that advantage often is to cause less damaging symptoms to the host. So, so can we hope that, I mean, is it the case that in, I don't know what, a hundred years, COVID will be a cold? I would fully expect COVID to become less dangerous in terms of symptoms and causing death. You've been studying viruses for a long time. And I'm curious, what have you learned about viruses? I've learned they're very, very clever. They're very simple, but they are just so exquisite in what they do and their ability to change, adapt, move on to new hosts, move on to new species. It's phenomenal. And our immune system, by the way, is pretty clever as well. It's, it's amazing. But it's always a step behind. We're always playing a little bit of catch up when it comes to viruses. They appear, we've got no immunity. And then slowly we get used to the virus and then we can happily coexist with those viruses. So we're stuck with viruses forever, I'm afraid. Thanks to my guests today, Gary McLean and Katie Dabin. Next week, we'll be talking about influenza, the flu. Seals off the coast of Maine are getting a nasty strain of flu, which is a big warning sign for humans everywhere. Well, with any sort of viral threat that's getting into humans periodically, dramatically, murderously, 
It's important to know how. How is that getting into humans so we can prevent them from getting into us? Incubation is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Ruby Studio at iHeartMedia. It's produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang, Ariella Markowitz, and Amy Gaines McQuaid. Our editors are Julia Barton and Karen Shakurji. Mastering by Anne Pope. Fact-checking by Joseph Friedman. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardot and Matt Romano. I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from GSK. Orexvi, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, in people 60 years and older. Vaccination with Orexvi is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV in adults 60 years and older. Orexvi does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexvi is right for you and learn more by calling 888-OREXV-9 or by visiting orexvi.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. RSV? Make it Orexvi.